You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Bernstein, who is a professor of law at George Mason University Scalia Law School. He's also the author of uh, two books of, I think it's fair to call them both works of legal history or legal interpretation. Most recently, this book called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, and this earlier book, Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform. Welcome, David. Thanks. So, look, this book, Classified, it was really kind of an eye-opener for me because while we all know that if you lived in apartheid South Africa or in Nazi Germany, or, you know, even in, in some countries like, you know, Malaysia, it's super important that you know what your race is because it has profound consequences, sometimes even life or death consequences. I did not realize how many different areas of law in the United States require that people have some way of identifying their, quote, race or ethnicity. And so this book kind of walks through all of these different domains of the law. And it also highlights not just sort of the incoherence of these categories, but also the inconsistency of these categories. So since one does not have this identity on one's passport, generally, you know, it means that depending on which area of law you are looking at, these categories, maybe different categories across these different areas of law. Did you realize how pervasive these categories were and how many different areas of law required that you utilize these categories? Yeah, it's sort of familiar. I mean, academia, so obviously if you apply for a job or to be a student, you have to check a box indicating your race and ethnicity. Uh, I've applied for mortgages. You have to do that. I've gone to the doctor, they ask you. I mean, I was sort of aware that there's quite pervasive, but, you know, I never really thought about it that much in the sense that we all kind of have this notion, well, there's white people and black people and Hispanic people and Asian people, and we never really think about, well, why these classifications, what do they mean, where do they come from, what justification you have to have for checking in one of them, what happens if you check one and someone says, wait, you're not really X, what happens if you refuse to check one, how much have the legal categories, because they are legal categories, interacted with the sociology, are these sort of classifications arise spontaneously, or are they government-dictated? The answer is they are government-dictated. All these questions were not things that, frankly, I, I ever thought about when I first started researching this topic. I was just pointing to write a law review article on different differences in classifications among different agencies in different states and cities. And there are some differences, especially the states will sometimes define the classifications a bit differently than the feds. What I did not know is that there is official federal definitions. There are official federal definitions that were promulgated by OMB, Office of Management and Budget, in 1977. And because of that, there aren't really a lot of differences among federal agencies. For the most part, 98% of the time, the official classifications that were invented in 1977 uh, apply everywhere. But look, I mean, these official classifications, while the ones we use might have more recent vintage, I mean, America has been classifying people forever, right? I mean, I, I go back and I look at the old census records for my family and, you know, in addition to their address and their place of origin, they have a column for race, right? And certainly in the deep South, right? I mean, you know, people had to have some identifier because it had profound consequences for their legal rights. So, I mean, we have been classifying people by race legally more or less since the beginning of our country, have we not? Sure. So the at the least at the federal level, really the only time the classifications came into play were on the census, whether you were black or white. Originally, those were the only categories they asked for. Eventually, they added first Chinese, then Japanese, uh, and that was basically it. And then otherwise, once the United States had a law excluding quote-unquote Asians from the country and prohibiting quote-unquote Asians from naturalizing as citizens, they had to figure out, 
well, where's the boundary line of who's Asian and who's white? But those are really the only two areas, like census rules and then segregation rules for blacks and whites and immigration. It was really only starting in the 1950s and really gaining speed after the civil rights movement that federal requirements to list people's race became sort of a pervasive aspect of American life. Of course, at the state level, you had anti-miscegenation laws and Jim Crow laws, and states had their own detailed explanations of what those things were in the South and in the West for Chinese. But again, those were not at the federal level. And even then, they weren't, uh, at least in the West, as pervasive. They did affect marriage, for example, but otherwise, no one would go around asking you what your race is officially. Now, originally, the from the federal level, right, this type of classification was motivated primarily by a desire to collect data, right? And in particular, right, in civil rights era, it was to figure out the extent to which discrimination was happening and the extent to which the laws trying to reduce discrimination were effective, right? The motivation was originally just around data collection and then subsequently became something which affected one's kind of legal rights, right? Yeah, so the modern categories can really trace themselves back to the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower administration issued several executive orders requiring government contractors not to discriminate, and contractors had to sign a pledge not to discriminate, but to enforce that pledge, uh, the government started asking, well, what sort of minority employees do you have? If you don't have any, that's kind of indication you might be discriminating. And they eventually settled on using the visible minorities, what we now call visible minority classifications, Native American, Asian, Black, and in those days they would have said Mexican, because the key at that time was you weren't supposed to ask people. It was considered rude at best, illegal at worst, discriminatory to ask someone what your origins are. It's really the only way to know for sure with any sort of certainty. You can just say, oh, you know, this person's Jewish or Catholic just by looking at them, but you could just sort of look around and say, who looks Mexican, who looks African-American without having to ask. Two things changed in the 70s. The first is by the 70s, we have massive amounts of civil rights legislation where we want to collect this data. And the second thing is we now start asking people to self-identify rather than visual identification. And that means that all of a sudden we're getting lots of white people who happen to have Hispanic descent checking off that they're Mexican or whatever. We have lots of different agencies that they're using different criteria because there's no official criteria to tell people, well, if you're in this group, you should check off this box. And so eventually the government said, look, we need some uniform classifications. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be ideal. They just have to be good enough to try to monitor discrimination. They did it in sort of a really half-assed way, but probably good enough to monitor discrimination. They weren't really expecting that, first of all, we have massive immigration from all over the world in the next 50 years, that we'd have lots of interracial marriage, much more than we used to, and that every government agency, private employer, city, state, would basically use these as their model for all sorts of things they weren't intended for, ranging from affirmative action to scientific research. Well, I think at some point in one of these discussions, they said these categories are not meant to reflect a sociological kind of reality, right? So, you know, a sociologist might not have come up with these categories if they were doing some kind of identity clustering. But it seems like there's sort of an endogeneity thing going on, right? A feedback loop, because once these categories get defined legally, it's sort of influences how people identify themselves. So if these identities may have been more continuous after they kind of get cemented in legislation, they start to impact the way people identify themselves. Does it then become like a sociological reality over time? Well, I think one of the big realities, which embarrassingly I didn't really think about till I was sort of nearing the end of writing my book, is that the white classification itself, I mean, yes, there was this overall, you know, if you weren't one of the other groups, you were by default white, but back in the 60s and 70s, we had books about the unmeltable ethnics and so forth. And, you know, within the white classification, there are often groups regionally or locally that face a lot of discrimination that were sort of considered outgroups, Cajuns in Louisiana, Portuguese in New England, Poles in Chicago. There's a whole bunch of these groups. And there were some white groups that were known to be especially 
having trouble socioeconomically, like Appalachian whites. And people were concerned about this stuff in the 60s and 70s. If we go back to the 60s and the war on poverty, the poster children for the war on poverty weren't what we think of now inner city black people. They were the Appalachians living, you know, in these shacks with no plumbing in Appalachia. But no one thinks about them anymore because now they're, or now with the opioid epidemic, it's hard for me to come back. But until recently, well, they're just white. So their statistics are just sort of incorporating into the white category, and that's how we think of people. But also, like, Hispanics, no one called himself Hispanic back in the 70s. Even today, most people we deem Hispanic don't think of themselves primarily as being Hispanic, but they've come to accept it as a secondary identity. Asian, we, we casually use the phrase Asian, but really, whether people from India, China, the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, etc., have in common, other than being part of this very long, big continent that has 65% of the world's population. And in that case, 35 to 40% of Asian Americans do consider themselves Asian American, but the rest reject that. It's sort of surprising that's academia, because we're so used to hearing people talk about Asians and the overrepresentation of Asians, whatever that means. But we forget that actually people from Vietnam or China, they think of themselves as either just Americans or Vietnamese Americans or Chinese Americans. They don't call themselves Asian Americans for the most part, because you know, why would you really? It's like saying if I'm a, you know, Polish American, well, I'm European. Who calls themselves the European American? Well, I mean, if this were a sociological exercise, then you presumably there wouldn't be that much harm in allowing self-identification, right? You know, you could just send out a survey and have people fill out the form. But when one's legal rights depend on one's categorization, then self-identification needs to be limited, right? And so, you know, you talk about these identity entrepreneurs. I mean, I guess people have been doing identity entrepreneurship for centuries. It's just that the directionality has changed, right? So in the 19th century, if you were uh, African-American, you would want to pass as white because it entitled you to more rights and privileges, particularly in Jim Crow South. But now the identity entrepreneurship goes the other way, right? And so you recount a bunch of stories where people in fire departments and other areas would attempt to claim membership in some of these minority groups in order to get access to uh, preferences. Right. Yeah. The, you know, the identity entrepreneur issue, there's you know, several layers to it. There are people who could choose one of many identities and just choose whatever happens to be the most convenient for their particular purposes. They might be socially white, but then check off Native American if they happen to have uh, tribal membership somewhere. There are others who really have only the vaguest connection to a minority ethnicity wouldn't ever really think of themselves that way. But if it comes to a point where they're trying to get minority business enterprise status or affirmative action universities, they say, well, if I can claim you know, this vague ancestry, why not? And then there are those who basically are engaging in sort of outright fraud, who adopt an identity that they really have no cultural or genetic connection to. Now, sometimes there's some of these really ridiculous cases where some professors have been caught doing this, claiming they're Hispanic. They don't just sort of claim Hispanic ethnicity without being Hispanic. They sort of put on a fake accent and, you know, they sort of almost act like a stereotypical Latino from a comedy sketch, but I guess they want to be overtly that way. So there's, there's different levels of it. And except for the latter one, none of them are really against the law. The law just usually asks you to check off which of these you identify as, and as long as you have some vague identity. Oddly enough, we're not usually given the official definitions when we check these boxes, so it's self-identification without actually getting any information. But if you are familiar with them, for example, Hispanic says you have to be of Spanish origin or culture. So if you have some Spanish-speaking ancestor from 500 years ago, you are of Spanish origin in a sense. You're not lying, you're just exaggerating, let's say. Puffery, we call it in law. So these categories, which I, I think now these categories have cemented themselves into common conversations, right? Black, Hispanic, Asian, and, and white, right? And I think we now have a fifth category, Pacific Islander, right? These categories were sort of the byproduct of a lot of kind of political decisions. These were never meant to represent sociological reality, right? So the OMB regulation, which is called Statistical Directive Number 15, specifically says, number one, these are not sociological or anthropological in nature. And number two, they're not meant to determine eligibility for any government program. They're really saying, look, guys, we just really need 
some sort of statistical uniformity. And they didn't do it. I mean, they didn't consult sociologists. They didn't consult anthropologists. They didn't consult geneticists. They didn't consult anybody, really. They just set up an interagency commission where they would sort of take random volunteers. The Hispanic classification is kind of the best, most well-documented and best example of it. They really didn't know what to call people with origins in Spanish-speaking countries. Some agencies were only looking for Mexican-Americans. Some were looking for Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. Some were added Cubans. Some added other Spanish-speaking origin. Some were only looking at Chicanos, some Latinos, some Hispanos, some Spanish language household, some Spanish uh, surname. All these had their problems. Uh, but in the end, they just essentially got a subcommittee together. They asked for three volunteers. We need one Cuban-American, one Mexican-American, and one Puerto Rican-American who lives on the mainland. They got them together in a conference room. They had no expertise. And they just fought it out. They just said one woman from Puerto Rico was very insistent that we should go back to Spain. She said, she said, I think it all goes back to Spain. So she insisted on Hispanic. And the consequence was, for example, that people from Spain of Spain purely Spanish origin are Hispanic. People from Brazil, because they don't have Spanish-speaking origin, are not. But if we had gone with Latino, it would have been the opposite. If we had gone with Chicano, it would have only been Mexican-Americans of mixed race, right? So there are all different ways this could have played out. It just sort of randomly, uh, I mean, there are some political antecedents to this, but in some sense, very randomly, it played out that we decided on the Hispanic term, and that has become a common parlance and part of the sociology. And I should add something really important. One reason these classifications are so influential, and I probably didn't emphasize this enough in classified my book, is that the census uses them. And it's not just that the census uses them. The census is the font of all data for researchers, right? If you want to do research on something, on ethnic or minority groups, whatever, the first thing to do is to go to the census data because they do this uh, every 10 years, they do this big community survey where certain people are asked, some subset of the population are asked to fill a lot of detail, and they get all these details, statistically speaking, about all these different groups, but it's only according to the official definitions. So you might think to yourself as an economist or me as a lawyer or someone as a sociologist or medical school professor, I really like to study Cuban-Americans, or I really like to study African immigrants from Nigeria. Well, you won't find that data in the census. You'll find African-Americans and Hispanics, which means that if you want to do the more finely tuned data, you'd have to go and get your own data set somehow, which is time-consuming and expensive. So the default is, for most people who don't have unlimited resources, we just use the census data, which means that we're getting everything we know about America, in a sense, is now filtered through these classifications, which weren't meant for that purpose. I mean, if the legal objective is to kind of redress prior and historical wrongs, then wouldn't it make sense to kind of come up with categories that shared the boundaries with those folks that had been sort of on the receiving end of discrimination and negative consequences. I mean, all of the groups suffered from discrimination, right? So wouldn't it make sense to kind of draw boundaries around, you know, groups of people who either individually or collectively were on the receiving end of discriminatory practices. Right. So again, you know, for the initial purpose of monitoring discrimination against major minority groups that could be relatively easily identified, it made a certain amount of sense could be visually identified, which also meant they're more likely to suffer discrimination, right? So it may not make sense in many cases to just lump African immigrants together with Native African Americans. But on the other hand, if you're just monitoring whether an employer is discriminating against black people, it makes a certain amount of sense. With regard to affirmative action, if your goal is to try to reduce the continuing harms of historical discrimination, it makes sense to include African-Americans whose ancestry goes back, way back to the U.S. It may make sense to include some Mexican-Americans, some Chinese-Americans whose ancestors were here before the Civil Rights Movement. But again, no one was thinking back in the 70s when the Hispanic population was only 5% and the Asian population was less than 1%. That we're going to have this massive immigration over the next 40, 50 years, such that now Hispanics are about 20% of the population, Asians are about 7%, and the vast majority of both populations have immigrated or their ancestors immigrated after 1965 when they were protected by civil rights laws. So it was a very bizarre situation where if you are an immigrant from Pakistan, from a wealthy family, went to whatever uh, University of Lahore, whatever the highest level university is in Pakistan, then went to Stanford and got your PhD and then opened a small business, once you get citizenship after five years, you get minority business enterprise 
preferences as a minority, but if your ancestors were sort of Italian or Polish immigrants who faced wide-scale discrimination in their day and inhibited their economic prospects, you get nothing. Appalachians were the poorest group that we have documentation of other than American Indians who live on reservations. They don't get anything special. So I've never really found anyone, no matter how enthusiastic someone is about affirmative action, I've yet to really find anyone coherently or even really try to defend why recent immigrants get minority business enterprise status, regardless of their family backgrounds and so forth. But poor people who've been in the country for generations and may have suffered their own discrimination don't. But it's just, you know, again, sort of a random happenstance. We created these classifications to monitor discrimination. They weren't meant to be affirmative action categories. They became affirmative action categories. And now, just by inertia, people who's immigrated here 15, 20 years ago can get a preference that, no matter how wealthy their family background is, where a poor American doesn't get it. Well, there are a couple cases that you describe in the book where an, an individual's status is under scrutiny. It's usually because of some kind of minority business enterprise preference. And they put themselves forward as being member of a minority group, and the determining administrator will either rule them as minority or not. And they'll sometimes refer to the characteristics of the individual and say, well, you know, you're someone who probably was not on the receiving end of any discrimination. And they'll usually make that determination based on their appearance or based on, you know, what language they speak or what their name looks like. Does it make sense to go to that level of granularity to figure out whether some individual either was on the receiving end of discrimination or is part of a group that would obviously be on the receiving end of discrimination? Would it make sense to require that? Speaking as a law professor, I just think those decisions that do that are just legally wrong in the sense that the official criteria that they're interpreting say, for example, again, uh, if you're to be Hispanic or Latino, you have to be someone of Spanish origin or culture. It doesn't say that you have to have suffered uh, discrimination based on your national origin or ethnic origin. So judges are kind of making it up, trying to look at the purpose of the regulation or the statute rather than the wording, which I think is problematic. It's also problematic to me because there's a good book out there by Ariella Gross of USC Law School about race trials in the 19th and early 20th centuries, when there would be occasionally a trial where the judge would have to determine someone's race without knowing exactly what their biological background was. Um, this would come up often, for example, in the days before no-fault divorce. Someone wanted to divorce their, their wife, and they'd say, I just found out that my wife actually is of African, partially African heritage, and she deceive me about that, and therefore that's fault that allows for a divorce, and then the woman would object, and they'd have a whole trial. Is she really a quote-unquote Negro, or is she white? And they would say, well, what does she look like? What do people think about her? What does she think about herself? How does she carry herself? How does she dress? Who are her friends? I mean, only, you know, does she perform whiteness? Does she perform blackness? And to some extent, these Hispanic cases are similar. Well, is, what's your last name? You know, do you speak Spanish? Do you look dark? You know, do you look Mexican? And so forth. And it, it, has, it bears an uncomfortable reminder of that to me. But and it's also the case that it's quite of a crude way of determining this, right? Because it really depends. I mean, you might have grown up as a very dark-complexioned, Spanish surnamed individual, but maybe you grew up in East LA where everyone was like that and you didn't really face any particular discrimination against that, where you could have grown up in Montana or somewhere where there aren't a lot of Hispanics and people found out and your name could have been Smith and people found out you were Hispanic and gave you a hard time about it and really discriminated against you. There's certainly not a 100% correlation between how you look and how you be perceived by a random person and what your life experience is. So it's problematic on a variety of levels, but in some sense, it does nevertheless make sense to limit preferences to people who are supposed to be overcoming discrimination rather than random people who could claim the ancestry. Well, you know, you mentioned genetic origins, and now that everybody has access to you know, 23andMe, presumably they can now have a greater uh, sense of their ethnic origins, right? Is the usage of genetic data impacting how people think about these classifications? I think this will have 
dramatic implications over time as more and more people do these tests. There's only been one case so far where someone has tried to change their identity for minority business enterprise status from white, either Native American or black, after having found ancestry from a DNA test of both, but only about 4% of each. I have to say, you know, I wasn't all that persuaded by the scientific evidence. Not all these DNA companies are that reliable. He didn't retest with somebody else, and he definitely had an agenda he was pursuing. In that case, Oddly enough, the first time he checked off the black box and Native American box, the state agency that he had to apply to said, okay, you're a minority now. But he reapplied then for federal status, which goes through the state also. And the same state agency, a different person reading it says, I don't think you're really black. So he's now, he remains black for state purposes, but not for federal purposes. But he did take the case all the way to the Ninth Circuit, which just said, well, it was reasonable for the court to deny your black status, and we're not going to look into it. It was really an opportunity for the Ninth Circuit to discuss this in some detail, but they didn't. But it's a very strange phenomenon, just sociologically speaking, in the United States and maybe other places as well, that we differentiate so greatly between someone who may have some vague ancestry and someone who has none. So I like, you know, everyone's familiar more or less with the case of Rachel DeLazel, who was an NAACP official who lived her life as a black woman, but it turns out had two completely European origin parents. But in fairness to Rachel DeLazel, she grew up with several adopted black siblings. She went to Howard University. She lived her life really as a black woman, dated black men, worked for the NAACP. She adopted a black identity. But I was like, oh, no, that's fraudulent. But if imagine a similar situation of a white woman, but instead of that being the situation, she takes a DNA test and discovers that her great-great-great-grandmother was a slave who was already of mixed race and eventually merged into the white population. All her descendants, including this woman, were white. But she discovers it. She goes, and now she says, I feel so, oh, I'm so touched to find this out. I feel identification with my black ancestry now. I now consider myself at least partially African-American. In this country, at least, we say, oh, yeah, cool. You're black, right? But why? I mean, what's the difference? I mean, in some ways, Rachel DeLazel has a much more of a claim. She actually grew up with black siblings, went to black college, lived her life as a black woman, than someone who just happens to have find out they have that genetic origin. And I don't think there's a good rational explanation. It's just the way our culture has developed, maybe because of the historic one-drop rule that if you discover you have African ancestry, in some sense, you're black. But if you want to live your life as a black person, you can't just do that. You're appropriating. Now, there's a lot of interesting stories in the book. One sort of narrative was about how the Jewish community in the United States went back and forth on whether or not they wanted to be categorized as a separate ethnicity, right? And of course, you know, we think about discrimination. The Jewish community has been on the receiving end of discrimination, you know, quite a bit. My father actually made a career out of working for Jewish-owned companies helping them to obtain financing because they couldn't join any of the gentlemen's clubs and they couldn't, you know, even get meetings with a lot of the the banks in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, and elsewhere. And so a lot of, a lot of us forget about the amount of anti-Jewish uh, behavior and policies that we had in the early 20th century. And so why then did not the Jewish community embrace the notion of identity politics in that sense? It's a very complicated story. It goes way back, but the Jewish community did not want to be singled out as a separate ethnic community uh, because that's how they were singled out often in Europe. They didn't know about the Holocaust back in 1900, but they were worried about stuff like that. You know, we know in a lot of the countries, like the French authorities, turned over all the records of who was Jewish to the authorities. They didn't want there to be these separate records. But they also didn't like the other prevailing ideology in the United States 120 or so years ago, which was that you either have to sort of assimilate into the waspy Protestantism or you're not really a full American. So it was really the American Jewish civil rights defense groups and American civil rights oriented sociologists and anthropologists who developed the idea of white ethnic groups, that you could be Italian or American or Polish American or Jewish American. You don't have to become you know, a Protestant uh, and assimilate to that culture and still be fully American. It led to Theodore Roosevelt's attack on hyphenated Americanism back in uh, the day, which I never really thought about how that may have some anti-Semitic implications, and maybe it does. But anyway, so there was a big fight 
100 years ago, over 100 years ago, the Congress said we want more granular data about which ethnicities are coming to the United States, not just what country they're coming from, because in those days you have all these multinational empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, and so forth. And they start putting Jews down as a separate race. And Jews said, we're not a separate race. We're a separate something, but not that. And they eventually compromised, and they started going by native language. They put them as Yiddish speakers rather than as Hebrews. Back when we, once we get to the 1950s, some of the original civil rights legislation in the North was really geared more towards Catholics and Jews than towards Blacks, because there were a lot more Catholics and Jews in places like New York or Illinois, or for a while there were Black people. So when the U.S. government first started keeping track of their contractors' civil rights initiatives, they originally had Jews as one of the minor categories with blacks being the major category. And the black groups objected to this and said this really should be a racial classification. Jewish groups, again, were not that comfortable with this to begin with. Plus, like I said, visual identification was the only way you could really do this without asking people. So Jews sort of dropped off the list. But, you know, it's not that discrimination against non-racial minority groups disappear. I was actually, I really didn't know some of these data until I wrote the book. I was pretty surprised to find out, even though I had known about discrimination, for example, the banking industry. I mean, you think of Jews, like the stereotype is, oh, good with money bankers. Out of 170 executives or something like that in New York banks in 1965, in a city that was about 30% Jewish, exactly one was determined to be of Jewish origin. And it's not just Jews in New York, Poles in Chicago, as of like 1972, out of hundreds of executives at major companies in Chicago, there were almost no Polish Americans there. So discrimination against these non-WASP immigrant groups did continue well into the 1970s. And it is sort of a matter of happenstance that white Mexican-Americans or Argentines or Spanish-Americans wound up being official ethnic members of an ethnic minority, but other groups that may actually have faced more discrimination, Greeks and Armenians and Italians, just wound up being generically white. Yeah, well, the Hispanic category is particularly unusual. It's different from all the others in that it's an ethnic category so that you can be both black and Hispanic or white and Hispanic. I mean, I think people are now starting to think of Hispanic as a race, even though it's very explicitly seen as an ethnicity in all of the kind of federal and state legislation. How did this category come to be? And and I think it's been in the news a lot lately because people have realized that there doesn't appear to be a unified Hispanic identity. I mean, there never was, but I think that now political commentators are, are starting to see that, you know, after the last election. Historically speaking, there was a big difference if you were white-looking and Hispanic, or mostly white-looking and Hispanic, and if you were sort of a very Indian, indigenous, and or African-looking Hispanic. So if you were accepted as white visually and otherwise, you could be a leading man you know, the Latin lover stereotype, Latin lover kind of uh, movie stars were. Ricky Ricardo, Desi Arnaz could, could do with, with Lucy. I don't know if Lucy have the most popular show in the country and no one was saying. But, but many people would conceal that, right? Like Ted Williams was half Mexican and he concealed that for most of his life, right? Right. I mean, you might still face you know, discrimination, um, but you would still generally be accepted as white. I mean, there were some fairly famous baseball players, Lefty Gomez, who had, you know, he could conceal, like, I guess his name was Williams, but if your name was Gomez, I guess you, you didn't bother. I'm sure they faced a certain level of discrimination, but it was probably more along the lines of what Hank Greenberg faced, or maybe even less than Hank Greenberg, because he faced quite a bit in the 30s, which was a very bad time for Jews in the U.S., uh, and less like Jackie Robinson. But if you are, you know, a dark-skinned, mostly just Mexican, especially if you lived in the border states, you might be subject to segregation and all sorts of other um, disabilities. And that's why, you know, so again, back in the 50s, when Mexican became a classification for purposes of federal discrimination enforcement, it was visual. So if you look Mexican, if you looked like you were Chicano, that was who would get chosen. If you if your name was Smith and you happened to have a maternal grandmother who was from Cuba, then that wouldn't count. Once you shift to self-identification, that becomes more problematic. And then the question was, well, what about Cubans more generally? Like Puerto Ricans and Mexicans were often of mixed race heritage, but Cubans were typically overwhelmingly of European origin, considered themselves white more or less. Well, the Cubans that came to the U.S., not, not Cubans in general. Yes. And the answer was that 
the Nixon administration, Richard Nixon himself, was very eager to incorporate Cubans into some sort of pan-national identity for two reasons. First, he said, now that we're starting affirmative action, Cubans vote for us. Mexicans and Puerto Ricans don't. How do we justify politically not including Cubans? Secondly, he was concerned about Chicano radicalism, Puerto Rican nationalism. We forget about all the bombings and hijackings that Puerto Rican nationalists had engaged in in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He thought having some pan-national Hispanic type classification would tamp down nationalistic sentiments. So there would have been some logic to having some sort of classification like Chicano and mixed-race Puerto Ricans, which would have been a racial category. But instead, once you include Cubans and you want to sort of tamp down radicalism, you sort of make it into a sort of generic ethnicity. And the Chicano activists were not happy about this originally. They said, what do you mean Hispanic, right? We hate Spain. Spain were the colonizers. They oppressed our ancestors. They raped them. Yes, we have some Spanish ancestry, but we don't think of ourselves as that. We're indigenous people, basically. But they eventually realized that this was politically advantageous in the sense that having Cubans and Puerto Ricans and Mexicans all in the same group gave them much more of a national political coverage than just being concentrated in the Southwest. And frankly, I think if you look at the leaders of the organizations that represented various Hispanics, and also today, if you look at who teaches Latino studies, who are famous Latino authors, there are a lot more Caucasian you know, lighter complexion than even the average Latino in the United States. So in other words, people have adopted identity, have become part, you know, for political reasons, and they benefit from it. And they also, I'm sure, often believe it. But there's really no sentiment now among the leadership to sort of undo what has been done. And if you did undo it, it would mean a lot of white Hispanics who teach Latino studies and are Latino activists and run Latino organizations would be out of a job. So there's that. And, you know, so in my view, if we're going to have this classification at all, it would make sense to have it be a racial classification, but limit to people who are mixed race, predominantly indigenous, who look like they're not European. Uh, instead, the trend is going the other way. The Biden administration is considering uh, making Hispanic into a race regardless of your actual racial background. So it'd be a very weird thing to me for someone who's of Italian, Argentine origin, or whose parents immigrated in 1960 from Spain to be a racial minority. But it seems, I mean, if the purpose of these categories is to kind of redress prior wrongs and kind of level the playing field. I mean, from what I've seen, the immigrant experience in America is one where the opportunities are still, you know, quite good, right? So second, third generation immigrants from even Mexico and other countries, they seem to do quite well. Immigrants from Nigeria and other parts of Africa and the Caribbean, excepting Haiti, tend to do quite well. And in many of these groups, their identities evolve over time and their attachment to their prior ethnicities seem to dissolve in ways that are similar to the ways in which those identities dissolved with prior immigration groups, whether they be Irish or Greek or, or Slavic. Is the creation of these categories, does it have the effect of slowing down that process? If we had official categories like Irish American and Jewish American and Slavic American in the past, would that have slowed down the integration or does the reality on the ground just sort of happen irrespective of these categories? So again, you know, the classifications weren't really meant to do anything originally, but make data collection easy. But the interest groups that have seized on these, I think, definitely do want to inhibit that process. How successful they're going to be in the long run, I don't know. But at the elite level, which has been entirely captured by people who have a sort of racialist ideology, I was just looking at the website of a Latino studies department and said, this is a safe space for students to explore the Latino identities. Now, why a university is a appropriate place to be a safe space to explore anything as opposed to it should be the, you know, maybe the opposite, a challenging place to think about whether Latino identity really is even meaningful. It's actually interesting. I actually looked at a bunch of Asian American studies and Latin American studies introductory syllabi. And they all start with the assumption that there really is such a thing as Latinos or such a thing as Asians as a matter of fact, not just convenience for statistical purposes. And they never actually explore what does it mean to be Asian American when you have all these different groups. So in any event, I think that there is still a lot of assimilation going on. One reason actually Mexican-American, for example, statistics always look worse than they really are as far as how 
well, they're doing economically, educationally in a assimilatory way because after a couple of generations, a lot of people who have a Mexican grandparent or great-grandparent don't call themselves Mexican if you ask them in a poll or in the census, but they may check the box. But the universities, big corporations, the government, by creating such things as, as Hispanic serving organizations, by having special diversity events for people of Hispanic origin or Asian origin, having affinity groups, they are encouraging people to maintain that very specific identity in the way that other ethnic groups historically were not. And I can't imagine that it doesn't have some inhibitory impact. In fact, I think what we have in the long run is a um, cultural battle that's sort of beneath the surface that no one talks about between what's going on at the grassroots, where Americans are less prejudiced than they've ever been. 95% of Americans have no objection to interracial marriage compared to 4% in 1958. That's quite a difference. Intermarriage rates are really high. Even, I think, the last group that's sort of a little bit of a taboo, even black women who are intermarried at very low rates have a much higher rate of racial intermarriage. Now, people, you know, mix together in all sorts of ways they weren't mixing before. And I think we have this opportunity to create this multicultural American identity where it's not that people are forced to assimilate into a WASP model, but where everyone, you know, we just don't think of an American as being any kind of subgroup. It's just you're just an American, you can be of any group, and we're all sort of have a common multi-ethnic culture. That's going on on the one hand. That's the natural course of things. Government, universities, the elite are trying to do the opposite, trying to stop that, and trying to permanently divide the United States into these different sort of haphazard and inconsistent classifications. You mentioned inconsistency. We should mention that. Black is defined, or African-American, as someone descended from the one of the black racial groups of Africa. So it's a purely racial category. If you're from Egypt, no matter how dark you are, you're not descended from one of the black racial groups of Africa, so you're not African-American. Asian is based on geography. Native American is based on cultural affiliation. Hispanic is based on ancestry in a Spanish-speaking country. So they're not even consistent with each other. Now, the best argument I can give on their behalf is to say that these people believe that America, that racism is so entrenched in the United States and that these groups sufficiently reflect that racism that they're never going away. So we just have to retain these classifications to make sure everyone's getting their fair share. Otherwise, we won't know. And I just think that, you know, again, the grassroots energy is in the opposite direction. And I just don't think it's right to assume that whatever the ethnic racial, et cetera, divisions that we have officially or unofficially are permanent. 62 years ago, uh, when JFK first became president, there had been real doubts whether a Catholic could become president. He actually lost millions of people who normally voted for Democrats, voted for, for Nixon because they wouldn't vote for a Catholic. He only won because he got something like 80% of the Catholic vote. There was Catholic identity politics. We don't think of that today because Catholics are much more assimilated. Uh, if you had told someone then that 60 years later, when Biden was elected, to be a Catholic president, a mixed-race, black-identified vice president, a Jewish speaker, uh, Senate majority leader, a Catholic Speaker of the House and five Catholics and three Jews on uh, the Supreme Court, they would have looked at you like you were completely nuts. They would have thought there was some kind of revolution that had gone on. You couldn't even imagine it, really, in 1960. And it's not even controversial, right? So why do we assume that the current breakdown, which is artificial to begin with, is permanent? Well, you know, there's this one case that you cited. This judge had an opinion. It was, I think it was an Ohio case where he said that it's antithetical to everything, you know, in America that your legal rights would depend on where your ancestors settled. And I think it was a Lebanese small business that was trying to get some public contracts. And he was arguing that he was Asian based on geography. Oriental. Yeah. That was before Asian came into uh, popular parlance. It said Oriental, but it didn't specify what it meant. So he said, well, uh, Lebanon is what was part of what was historically considered the Orient, or arguably anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, you, obviously you do have to draw lines if you're going to have categories. The Asian line is particularly interesting because, you know, I've been to Kazakhstan many times and the Kazakhs are, you know, visually very Asian in appearance, but they are considered white. And, you know, I guess Maoris are considered white, but Brahmins from India who are visually indistinguishable from Europeans are considered Asian, right? So back in the 1920s, under the Asian Exclusion Act, the courts ultimately decided that 
even though the Middle East, the Arab countries are in Asia, that they're not Asians, but that was likely because they were mostly Christian Lebanese, so they were culturally similar. But Indians, no matter how fair-skinned and Caucasian-looking, were while Caucasian and so forth, were not considered to be white by other peoples that made them Asian. So Indians sort of went, had also weird census things. They usually just checked other because they didn't really fit in because the census classification was Oriental, which they were not, right? Because that was like Japanese, Chinese, et cetera. And then by the early 70s, when we had, you know, not many Indians, but increasing Indian immigration, federal agencies put them down as white. They said, look, Indian Americans are well-educated. They own a lot of businesses. They're doing well educationally. They're Caucasian. They don't fit into Oriental. So we'll put them as white. And when the federal government first proposed in the federal register these new classifications, the proposal was that South Asians, like Indians, Pakistanis, etc., would be in the white category. Some small Asian-American lobbying group in New York got wind of this and said, no, we want to be in the Asian classification. We admit that we are, you know, well, more well-to-do than most groups, but eventually poorer people will come and we still face discrimination because many of us are dark-skinned and no one really cared because there were only like 100,000 Indians in the country, so they just added them to that category. But really, ultimately, it, you know, they may not make sense for them to be white, but what sense does it make to put them in the same category with Chinese people? On the other hand, uh, there was another Indian American group in Chicago that heard about this a year too late. They said, wait, we don't want to be with the Asian group because we're very successful. And if eventually they're going to put quotas on Asians and then we're going to only get a, a percentage of that quota, which is what's happening in universities now. So, you know, by happenstance, if the two groups have been reversed and how, when they found out about this, Asian Indians would now be white. It just, it's, it always makes me sort of chuckle. When uh, I'm on Twitter or something, every once in a while I'll see some Indian American sort of left-wing activist rant about white people. And I think to myself, well, you know, but for the uh, grace of God, you have been a white person officially, and we all think of you as white, and then people be ranting about you. So it's a lot of arbitrariness. But one of the ironies of the fact that Indians were ultimately included in the same category as Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, is that reinstated the old racist Asian classification from the Supreme Court of the 1920s. Well, you're white, you're Caucasian, but you're not white. So Indians are the only group that are, and other South Asians that are Caucasian, but not white. Well, I want to turn briefly to this book, uh, Rehabilitating Lochner, which I found to be very eye-opening. For those of us who have trained in the law, maybe in history, Lochner sort of serves as a bogeyman, right? Sort of as an example of judicial activism gone haywire, right? And it's oftentimes lumped in with uh, the Dred Scott decision as being among the worst examples of kind of anti-progressive Supreme Court decision-making. When you read this book, I mean, it's hard to come away with anything other than the notion that this historical narrative was constructed to serve a particular political purpose and that it really obfuscates the complexity here. And, and I think you draw parallels between Lochner and Buchanan, right, as much as Lochner and Dred Scott. Uh, and I think that progressives don't look as saintly as they do in the traditional narrative. They seem to be in alignment with all sorts of, you know, racist, sexist, and, and exclusionary points of view, right? And the one quote from Justice Holmes, where he equated the Lochner majority with social Darwinism, when he was, in fact, the leading proponent of social Darwinism, it's kind of remarkable. So, I mean, how is it that the historical profession and the legal historical profession has managed to kind of skew the narrative so incredibly? Well, I mean, it's a very odd phenomenon, not so much because I expect at this point in my life history to always be 100% 100% accurate or gender-free, because clearly both neither of those things are true, but that a lot of the objections that were made to Lochner over the years are self-refuting if you actually just read the opinion. So, for example, Justice Beck- Peckham, who wrote the majority opinion, is often accused of 
ignoring social realities in favor of abstract social theory or laissez-faire theory. If you read the opinion, he very specifically says that I'm going through all the statistics about the health of different professions. It looks to me like bakers are about the same as things like law clerks and blacksmiths and whatnot. We don't regulate them, so why are we regulating bakers? Now, you could argue about whether that's a proper way of deciding the case or not, but he clearly was not neglecting the actual facts on the ground. Basically, the way I explain it to my students is that before the New Deal period, there were a whole bunch of doctrines that served in one way or the other to limit the scope of government regulatory authority. One of them was liberty of contract, which was the issue at the heart of the Lochner case. There was also uh, limits on the scope of the federal government's commerce power. There was limits on the federal government's delegation authority. There was the Tenth Amendment. There were equal protection notions that you couldn't tax randomly certain people more than others. A whole bunch of different doctrines out there. And these doctrines were widely accepted by almost everybody for a long time. When the progressives came around, they started questioning them. But even even then, often the question wasn't, do we understand these doctrines? Just that, well, we don't think they're in the Constitution. But what I think really happened was that Already by the early 1930s, classical liberalism, the kind of people who believed in limited government and so forth under the rule of law, had really been dying out. Progressive just really swept the country intellectually. So already people were sort of questioning, well, where did these ideas even come from? Then we had uh, two of the three great calamities in American history after the Civil War, one of which was the Great Depression and the other which was World War II, which, you know, the whole fate of the world was at stake, 600,000 almost Americans uh, get killed fighting the war. And both the, in both those cases, people came to believe that the country was rescued by big government, right? Big government, Franklin Roosevelt got us out of the Depression. The war helped get us out of the Depression, but also big government defeated the Nazis, right? If we didn't have a strong federal government, we wouldn't be able to uh, marshal the resources to beat the Nazis and the Japanese. And between the dying out of the old classical liberal intellectual elite and the practical thing that people saw that government is good, right? We conquered the Depression, we conquered our enemies. The idea that anyone would legitimately believe based on sort of reasonably sound legal theory that the government should be inherently limited in some way just struck people as nuts. I mean, as late as 1964, when Barry Goldwater was running for president, people literally, there's a whole college industry of books talking about how Goldwater is not just wrong, but he's crazy. Now, part of that was that he was very hawkish on foreign policy, but also, I mean, the idea you want to go back to sort of a pre-New Deal level of government regulation, that's just crazy. Only crazy people would believe that. So if you think that only crazy people would believe this stuff, then you have two choices. You either have to believe that the Supreme Court before the 1930s was crazy or they were evil. Because right, that's the other possible explanation. They knew this was bad. They knew limited government was bad, but they were reactionary social Darwinists. They hated workers. They um, were eugenicists, whatever it may be. And that became the story. Once that becomes a story, then instead of actually going back and looking at the origins of all these different doctrines and understanding them in context, you just dismiss them all as being the product of evil reactionary times. Contrary-wise, since the bad guys, the evil guys, were like pro-Lochner, that means the other side were the good guys. And that means we overlook the fact that many of the so-called good guys, like Brandeis and Holmes, were perfectly okay with racial segregation, with limiting the rights of women, with eugenics and so forth. Holmes famously upheld the eugenics law, saying that three generations of imbeciles is enough. And he said, I would have used harsher language. Hard to imagine what would have been harsher, but he really enjoyed that opinion. He told Harold Lasky, but I had to keep it toned down. That was his version of toned down. So we wound up with this Manichaean view that there were the good guys, the progressives, the bad guys, the uh, Lochnerians, and that's the story that came down and made sense to people. And it's only once, I think, two things happened. First, it was long enough, far away enough in the 30s that some liberal historians started looking at it. And then there was a revival of classical liberalism, including, I guess, me, who said, wait a second, I'm reading these opinions. They don't look so evil to me. There's nothing social dominance about them. They're not even pro-laissez-faire. They just say there are some limits. You have to give us, if you're going to deprive people of their rights, be it 
to give birth or to work more than 60 hours, you have to at least have a good reason. It's not so crazy. And as a result, we've gone back and been able to reconsider on both sides, whether the progressives were always so good and whether the other side was so evil. And in particular, I think now we have more sensitivity than they had in the 30s, 40s, 50s to the rights of women, to the rights of black people, to the rights of immigrants. We could see that it was often the people on the limited government side who are more what we call today progressive on these issues. One issue that's not in, that's only barely mentioned in my book, but is very relevant, is when the United States took over territories from Spain in 1896 after the Spanish-American War. The question was, do we need to give the people in Puerto Rico and the Philippines and so forth and Cuba rights or not, it was the same people who voted for Lochner who said, of course you have to give them rights. And it was the more progressive mind of justice who said, oh no, rights are only for real Americans and these aren't real Americans. So again, there are all sorts of complications. And, you know, and that's when you're doing real history as opposed to just sort of continuing what were ultimately propaganda positions meant to shore up the foundations of the New Deal state without really thinking too much about it. You get a lot of, you get a lot of interesting stuff. Well, what's interesting is it seems like both sides of the contemporary political divide, you know, find something to like in the progressives, right? So it's the conservative judicial folks that look back to the idea of judicial restraint and see that and find its origins in the progressives, right? Yeah. So one of the great ironies of American legal or constitutional history, is that until the early, late 50s, early 60s or so, the people who were against judicial activism were the progressive. And they were pretty sincere about it. I mean, for the most part, they didn't take the reins of the court and start trying to enforce a right to welfare or a right to housing. They pretty much wanted courts to stay off most of these things. And then after Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954, and the government was cracking down on communists in the 50s, and there were those who thought this violated the First Amendment rights or threats of First Amendment rights. The younger generation of liberals started to rethink and said, maybe we need, at least with regard to race and with regard to freedom of expression, to be somewhat more aggressive judicially. And race not only relates to race itself, but to criminal procedure rights, which are often denied especially to black people. And as late as 1958, Learned Hand, the great progressive judge, gave a lectures at Harvard denouncing Brown versus Board of Education, denouncing the court's First Amendment cases. But that was like the last hurrah. And the newer generation said, no, we want the court to be more sympathetic to the rights of minorities and to the rights of free speech. And who then took up the progressive cudgel was Robert Bork and Rehnquist and so forth, who used the old progressive ideology against the new liberals and said, wait, you were the ones who said the court should stay out of this stuff. You were the ones who said that judicial activism is inappropriate, and here you are ordering busing, ordering reproductive rights under Roe v. Wade. And I don't think it was disingenuous, but conservatives didn't really have their own ideas. And so the best they could do was to oppose the liberals at that point, since there were so few conservatives in the academy, was to throw their own old ideology against them. I don't think it persuaded anybody. Over time, conservatives came to adopt originalism in addition to or maybe mostly in place of hostility judicial activism. Uh, so the court now, and of course this also has to do with the fact conservatives control the court and they need a positive ideology. What, what do you do when you control things, not just how do you oppose the other side? So now they're less likely to write opinions lauding judicial restraint and say, well, let's talk about the original meaning of the Constitution and so forth, except when it comes to the 14th Amendment and due process, in which they say, well, 14th Amendment due process, when you have Roe v. Wade or Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case, those are just like Lockheed because they're making up rights not found in the 14th Amendment. And the liberals respond, no way. That's not what Lochner is. Lochner is the reactionary social Darwinist laissez-faire court trying to limit government in the economic sphere. So we went with this really stupid debate between the two sides where each of them are shouting Lochner at each other. But since they each mean something different by what Lochner means, one means don't make up rights in the due process clause, the other means leave the government alone when it's regulating economics, they're talking right past each other, and it's very unproductive. Well, I think there's one area where the Lochnerians of the earlier period and the progressives of the, of the more current period would agree and that that's the outcome of the Buchanan case. And I was not aware of the importance of the Buchanan case, but you argue that this case had a big impact and constrained a, a lot of the racial segregation laws that were in place. I wonder if you could just say a few words about, about that case and how I think Justice Harlan was the one that wrote the opinion, right? 
uh, Justice Day. Okay. So Buchanan versus Warley is maybe the most important Supreme Court case, at least of the post-Civil War era, that most people, even most law professors, either not heard of or only vaguely aware of. So we all know about Jim Crow laws in the South and the restriction that those put on African Americans. What we don't mostly know, because it was declared invalid, was starting in around 1910. There was a wave of laws, mostly in border states, but also spreading to the North, that tried to restrict African Americans from living in quote-unquote white neighborhoods. They were structured in a variety of different ways, but the basic point is that if a block or a neighborhood was already mostly white, a black person wouldn't be allowed to buy property there or otherwise live there. And the Supreme Court, in a 9-0 to zero opinion uh, in 1917, said that was unconstitutional as a violation of liberty and property rights. Holmes wrote, drafted a dissent, but he didn't deliver it, so he was not completely on board. Probably because he couldn't get another vote, he didn't bother delivering it. But in any event, this opinion has been downplayed because it doesn't fit into the narrative we just discussed of the sort of Lochner side being reactionary and evil consistently. But the rationales are given as well. First of all, that people say it's not a race case, it's a property case. The court just loved property rights, and that's just that's just wrong. I mean, the court said this is a property right and a liberty right, but they could have just as easily then went on to say, but it's within the police power. Just like Plessy versus Ferguson said that reasonable segregation laws are okay, this is a reasonable segregation law. So even though it infringes on some rights, too bad. Uh, instead, they said that even though the government has expressed some reasonable police power interests in this law, like preventing racial tension, like protecting property values, that's not a good enough reason to deprive people of their rights. Black people and white people, both sides, they said that explicitly. So that is wrong. The other reason it's kind of downplaying poo-poo is people say, well, but it didn't stop residential segregation. Zoning laws that were not racially based were used, restrictive covenants were used, violence was used. And it's true that Black people still face segregation, still faced a certain amount of housing restrictions. We know that. But we also know that just the mere fact that they remain segregated does not prove anything. I mean, Jews and Poles and Italians all had their own neighborhoods. They were also segregated, but we don't think of them as being completely legally segregated the way Black people might have been. So in any event, with the point I make, and some other people have made the same point, is that when it comes to these laws, if they had spread throughout the United States, we might very well have wound up in a South Africa-style situation. South Africa started apartheid laws around the same time, where you're only allowed to live in certain places, and you have to have a pass to go somewhere else. And so Chicago was even contemplating passing one of these laws until Buchanan came out. So they didn't stop residential segregation. Chicago, during World War One got hundreds of thousands of Black emigrants from the South. New York wound up getting uh, hundreds of thousands later. They didn't get the best choice of housing. They were restricted to certain neighborhoods. But there were neighborhoods that had previously been white that wound up being African-American neighborhoods. That could not have happened if the laws had been upheld. And one of the major reasons for it, which my colleague Ilya Soma and I explained in one article we wrote, is that it's a lot easier to enforce segregation if the government will do it for you. Right? If there's a law, you can't sell a house to a black person if you're in a white neighborhood. Well, you're a white neighbor, you don't like the black person moving in, you just go to the police and say you have to enforce the law. You know, it doesn't cost you much. On the other hand, what happens if this occurs under restrictive covenants? Well, first you have to get the restrictive covenant, then you have to get a lawyer. You have to pay money for the lawyer. You have to sue. You have to hope the court upholds the judgment. Uh, and then it's a lot of money. Maybe it's easier just to sell your house yourself if you don't want to live next to a black person, right? So it's hard to quantify exactly how much of a difference it made, but it made, a, I would say, a significant difference in the ability of black people to move from rural areas of the South to cities in the North, in the border states, where they in turn wound up having a fair amount of political power, without which the 64 Civil Rights Act and so forth would have never been passed. Well, look, there's a lot of other nuance in the book where you talk about the interests of the railroads who opposed segregation, about Lochner itself, where it was really the large bakeries that were trying to put the small bakeries out of business. And, and I guess one final question is, you know, history is complicated and the, the narratives are complicated. And yet even very educated people seem to be comfortable with simplistic narratives. I, I can never really understand this because, you know, when it comes to, say, entertainment, right, you know, you watch a TV show like, I don't know, Succession, people are capable of juggling all of these different narratives and understanding all these different individuals. But when it comes to history, 
and legal history in particular, you know, people don't seem to be particularly interested in nuance, right? So, you know, why is that? I'm not talking about people who are on the outside, but people on the inside, right? People in, in the legal academy, people in in the historical academy. Why why is it that we insist on sort of these simple Manichaean narratives? Well, I think you're asked sort of two different questions. Why people in general do this and why with academics, you would think we know better to do it. I'll let me start with the second one. For academics, I think that once a narrative becomes established, uh, unless you know, it's really hard to fight against it. You're you're a young academic. You're writing your PhD thesis. You're writing your initial articles. Yes, you might want to be the dragon slayer who proves you know the new thesis and everyone else was wrong. But you better do that really well. Like this is this is sort of the example of if you're going to go after the king, you better kill him. So if you just do a sort of a half baked job, not don't persuade people that much. People can say, oh, you're you're just a nut. You're just uh, someone's on the fringe, and you don't know what you're talking about. It's a lot easier just to go along with the accepted narrative, add your little piece. To it, add your little extra research, get tenure, and live your happy life. So I think uh, you know most people are go along to get along kind of people. They're not uh, especially independent-minded or that interested in upsetting the apple cart. Uh, for in general, why people, I mean, go along with uh, simplistic narratives. Um, unfortunately, I mean, the best I could, you know, this is a little bit outside my own expertise as just a law professor, just a humble country law professor here, but um, I'll refer people to Michael Shermer's work. He's the editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine, or he was at least the founder and editor-in-chief. He's written a, a bunch of books about why people believe you know, other nonsense, like Holocaust denial or other strange things, conspiracy theories. And he just attributes it to, in an evolutionary sense, humans are storytelling animals. We're not geared intellectually as a rule to be analytical and try to pick things apart. We instead look for heuristics and we try to fit everything into a, an easy story. It, it saves us a lot of brain time. And, you know, if you're thinking about if you're living in ancient tribal societies, you know, the person who is out there questioning the tribe's beliefs was probably going to get kicked out and not reproduce. And the person who's like, yes, let's let's all talk about how we were invented by the sun god meeting with the moon god and how that explains uh, the seasons and everything else, and we have a nice little story. Those are the people who are going to succeed uh, biologically, and unfortunately, we've inherited that. So it's a very frustrating thing that, um, you know, anyone who's spent any time in the comment sections on blogs or on Twitter or all that, just know that most people are not susceptible. Even people who are relatively well-educated, or they wouldn't be writing comments on blogs, they're just not susceptible to empirical data that conflicts with the story they've already told themselves. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me. The books are classified, Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, very eye-opening, and also Rehabilitating Lochner, for those of you interested in legal history. Thanks, Greg. Good to see you. Great to chat. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.